Hi, welcome to 1001 Books, the podcast where we read the 1001 books the experts say you're supposed to read before you die and decide if they're really worth your time. I'm Nicole, and according to my library TBR, I really love books about magic. And I am Chelsea, a lover of any fantasy novel with a strong female read and a new mom desperately failing at finding time to read. Which you can tell because she said read instead of lead. <laughs> yep. Yep, yep, that's yeah, about we're where leaving, we're at, we're, that <laughs> <laughs> we're here to talk about book 66 yeah. on our, our podcast journey. Um, have you read anything besides book 66, Jess? I have not. Surprising, but true. <laughs> um, well, I will happily talk about one that I've Yay! read. Um, I recently read The House in the Cerulean Sea. <gasps> oh my gosh, this is on my TBR that never ends. Was it good? Yes, um, by T.J. Clune. And I read this because someone that I'm friends with on Facebook was like gushing about it on there. And it's really sweet and fun. It's about um, a character who like works for a government agency that runs orphanages for kids that have superpowers or that are like, you know, weird in some way or another that like like oh this one's like a fairy or this one's you know we don't know what this one is or this one can has wings or because it's really strong or um and so he gets assigned to go to this orphanage that supposedly has the most strange kids in it Mm -hmm. um to evaluate it and see if it's like a good place for the kids to live and then he gets there and it's um and the kids are really interesting like one kid is like a jellyfish like blob <laughs> and then no one knows what he is and one is it there's one who's a gnome and there's one who um is like a, a a wood wood forest fairy type thing and and there's and then the main kid that they're worried about is the antichrist oh <laughs> like the literal antichrist but he's six years old um and then it's just about how those kids have kind of made their found family with the and then there's a um there's a romance between the man who directs, who runs the orphanage, and the guy, and this guy, the main guy. Oh. So it has a really positive, like, queer story in it that's, like, just fun and light, which I think is a space that where there needs to be more yeah. writing. And, it, yeah, it was just really sweet. I don't think I loved it as much as the person who I got the recommendation from, but it was very endearing and, like, definitely worth reading. Oh, well, that makes me happy that you read that and enjoyed it. All right, so our book this week was Eugenie Grandet de Grande. Oh, from the audio I listened to, it was Eugenie Grandet. Yeah, it was, and mine even said it different than that. So uh, I mean, people think they have a can have a French accent. They can't. Yeah. I'm gonna call her Eugenie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was written by Balzac, so Honoré de Balzac. In French, originally, in 1833. And obviously, this book is now in the um, public, domain. public domain. And so, it's one that you can get various translations and things of um, for it. The one that I read was the Oxford translation, oh, yeah. which I generally like the Oxford World Classics versions. I've been trying to buy those when we buy some- them sometimes, because they generally are pretty good. I definitely bought, like, a cheap... Anyone Nicole can print bought one. from a cult again. It's not a, at least it doesn't say it's from a cult. But any like anyone can print it, and it says translated by Catherine Prescott Warmly. Oh, let's see who mine is. Mine is translated by. I just always get the cheapest version. Sylvia you know? Raphael. Oh, so we read different translations. That's interesting. I, I, I wonder if the audiobook I listened to was a different person too. Oh yeah, because I listened to half on audio too. Yeah, that's possible. Um, I, yeah, I listened to one of the audios on LibriVox. 
Yeah. Uh, that's funny. I don't think it's ever happened that we've read different translators before. No. All right. I don't doubt it changed much about this um, book. As a, just a little side note, recently, um, I was speaking of audiobooks. I was talking to my father-in-law, and, and, and he was ta- he listens to all his reading on audio. And he said, you know, so-and-so. And it was like the name of a an audiobook reader who, who records a lot uh-huh. of things he read. And he just said that name. Like, well, you know, this audiobook person. And I'm just like... No, no one else in the room like knew it. It was That's really funny. So funny. And I was like, I never pay attention to who the reader is unless it's the author themselves or like no. someone famous like Will Wheatley or something, you know? Um, yeah, I mean I like certain audiobook readers, yeah. but I don't know who they are. I just yeah, I know don't. what audiobooks. So maybe we should be giving them more credit. I don't know. <laughs> it is a profession. I um briefly looked into how you can as long as you have studio equipment like what we're on right now um and you would just buy like one level higher microphone than we're using right now record audiobooks but i and get paid for it but i just feel like my voice is not meant for that i know i don't really like the sound of my voice odd that i've chosen to do this podcast for a thousand episodes but i (laughs) i mean and my husband tells me that when i read aloud i sound like a teacher and so I don't feel like people would want to listen to a teacher reading to you them. You do have a strong teacher voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Maybe I could narrate children's But you are books. a teacher, so that is a good thing for you to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yes. Um, Anyways, carry on. We're going to be full of tangents. This is the second episode we're recording behind the scenes. We sometimes record two episodes a night. I think we've told you that before. And so, you know, they're always more punchy, the second one. Um, yes. It's like we've finished our drink and are just like, we got this now. Yes. Um. So what was your one word description of this book? Greedy. Mine was miserly. Okay. Very much in the same vein. Yep. 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 So when we were writing a quick plot for this one, we said that Eugenie Grande grows up with a miserly but wealthy father and it has an enormous impact and ramifications for her life. Yeah, I think sometimes we read books with them, we're like, oh, there's like these, you know, five or six or main themes. And this book, I'm like, there's one, one theme, <laughs> the evil of money. <laughs> yeah. It's all over the place. Which, if you think about the timing of when this book was published, it was right after the French Revolution. After, right after Napoleon. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... That probably was a large theme in France. Yeah. I would put this book in a category, like we've read several for the podcast and several in general, of like books from the 1800s about a family in a small town and all and some sort of drama, all of their goings on. And um, probably the one that reminded me most is the one we read about the ch- about the check. You know, the, it was, oh, that uh, one was English. Uh, it was a series the chronicles of barset yes barset um where that was like a very long like country 1800s yeah. novel about this oh there's this missing check and this one kind of had that same this flavor. one was really short though yeah this one was much shorter um <laughs> yeah this one it really it too it reminded me of the dickens not i liked the dickens novel for better um bleak house um but it reminded me of it in that it really hammered its point home yes like i think that that might be i wonder as we read more broadly from like this kind of era if this style of writing from that era really like chose a point and was like this is our intention this is what the point is like yeah um yeah. <laughs> because it really like to the point that 
I understand why this was considered a comedy. Because because it has like caricatures in it, similar to Bleak House, and yeah, it was almost um like farcical. Yes. Also, yeah. this is a part of apparently Balzac's great comedy yes. Humane, it's which first, I don't know what that is. It's the first novel in like a group of novels that he all wrote that are all comedies, kind of about provincial French life at the time. Oh, um, see, so you did some research. Yeah. Yeah, and a little bit, little bit of research. Um, One Wikipedia read. So, in this story, <laughs> we meet a family that is rich, like really, rich. really rich. But the father of this family is a giant jackass, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the episode. Uh- <laughs> he like has convinced them they have no money. Yeah, his wife and his daughter think that they're poor basically and one of the jokes is like the town knows that they're not poor but like the wife and the daughter aren't in on the joke yeah they and they don't know and all these people are trying to marry the daughter because she's going to be an heiress the only his only but she doesn't get why no because she doesn't think she has money because they're he's like counting out how many teaspoons of sugar they can have per day and how many eggs one of his hobbies is cutting the sugar cubes in half to make sure they're small enough smaller so you can divvy it out even more strictly yeah Yeah. and so (laughs) they really hammer home the point that he is just a giant dick uh and he concentrates he cares only about money only about turning his money into more money but then he doesn't even spend it yeah and he isn't even excited about leaving it to his daughter it's not like he's worried about his legacy he just loves it for itself well and at one point in the book he tricks his daughter into signing away her like dowry essentially yeah um but the jokes on him because in france at the time i did google this in france at the time when you died your money could only go to your direct descendants so like he doesn't want to give her his dowry but he perfectly well knows that his money is going to her. Yeah, and he like doesn't want her to marry because he, you know, like all these people are vying to marry her to get her money, but he like he she's just another piece of money to him basically and he wants to keep yep. her to himself. Yeah. Um, and then in the book his uh his nephew that her cousin comes and stays with them and um it turns out that his dad has like gone bankrupt and killed himself. And um, she, of course, immediately falls in love with her cousin. Because, you know, marrying your cousin, totally fine. Yeah, it's the 1800s. And <laughs> and she's very sheltered. So yeah. I don't blame her for just, like, wanting to jump on the first and attraction. And the cousin is sees. very nice to her. Yeah, and nobody's nice to her, yeah. really. Like, no ma- male figure is nice to her. Uh, and then the cousin has to go to the Indies to make his fortune because of his, like, shame because his dad was bankrupt. Has to, meaning the miserly father is like, bitch, get out of yeah, here. Yeah, and, and keeps saying, even to himself, I don't even have 50 francs to give him. And it's like, he has millions of francs. He's very rich, but he <laughs> oh won't my help God. him. One of my favorite scenes in the whole novel is the daughter. He, like, he made his sale of wine right around when this is happening, his big sale of wine. And he, like, comes up to the wife and the daughter, and he's like, I made... Or I sold them for 200 francs or whatever the number is. And and, he, and the daughter goes, oh, how many did you sell? And he's like, 1,500 or something. And she goes, 
so that's 250,000 francs. Surely you could help our cousin. <laughs> and he just goes, no, that's that. You don't understand the money. And yeah, just like walks. Cause he just wants to take that money and invest it like in a bank to get interest from like a, like a government bond, which he spends a lot amount of time. Talking I about. I heard a lot about how he's going to get his it's, return. It's the only thing he cares about in his life. Yeah. Um, and so then the cousin leaves and goes to the Indies to make his fortune and she pines and pines away for him for years. He did tell her that he loved her like before they left. Like it was, it was supposedly he was, he, mutual. Yeah. Supposedly. Supposedly. And, the, and then her mom dies, her dad dies. And then the cousin. And so she's rich now. The money is hers and she's using it to like help the poor, like a mm-hmm. nice person and still living pretty simply because that's what she's used to. And it feels strange to her. Not I to. thought that cousin abandoned her first. Am I mixing up the order? You're mixing up the order. Okay. Because then she's hoping that he'll come back from the Indies and then seven years have gone by and he comes back and he writes her a letter basically saying, hey, I'm marrying someone else who's going to give me a title and I'll be part of the nobility. Um, sorry. Bye. <laughs> like, and and she's heartbroken and then she marries one of the people who has been trying to get her hand all on to get but the money. But only under the uh, idea that they will not have issue, which is 1800 speak, where they won't have kids. Yeah. And so never have sex because it's eighteen hundreds, because she because she has to like pine away for this guy, and then it basically and then like the book ends like it's very sad, and it's and she's 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 basically always in prison by the fact that her dad was such a jackass. Well, and it even seems like she towards the end of the book, it's just like she's not even really focused on giving to the poor anymore. It's like she's just sitting on that money because her husband dies too. Yeah, her husband dies too. So she's a widow, living simply in the house. Not spending any of the money. The end. Yeah, and the, the basically the narrator is like, "Yes, it's isn't it strange? Someone whose only value in life was to be in a wife and a mother isn't a wife or mother, but is really rich." Ha ha! ha the end. <laughs> and I think, yeah, it's I, what pissed me off about that ending is, from a modern perspective, if she had wanted that and had just been like. I want to live my simple life and fuck my dad. I want to sit on this money and not do anything with it. And when I die, it'll go somewhere, but I'm just going to chill here. Yeah. Then fine. I would have been like, Oh, that's hilarious because she's just like, screw you dad. But no, no, it's just that she didn't think she had any other option. It wasn't a big F you to her dad. Yeah, She just didn't know any other way to live because she wasn't taught any other values and she had very little exposure to the world. And basically they're saying like she's very pious and mm-hmm. she's in the world, but not of the world. Right. Straight out of the Bible. Yeah. Um, it and, definitely, and so, so she's sort of honored like for being so. It definitely impressive. was supposed to be like a parable about the dangers of trying of greed. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a parable that, about the dangers of greed. That's all this was, which makes me wonder if each of his um, parts of this com- comedy humane or whatever are a different kind of parable because that'd be interesting because this really wasn't that long of a book it was only a six hour audio book it was 150 pages yeah um it's not it's not badly written or badly translated it just is an 1830s book yeah i i while i was driving here to your house to record this my mom called me and she asked me what what book we were talking about and i was like oh this one it's 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 like it's like a basic 1800 books like charles dickens but not funny <laughs> like it's not nearly as funny or as interesting as Bleak House, and Bleak House was only like sixty percent interesting. <laughs> I did find some of the things funny in it, but um, I was listening to it on 
two times two speed. Yeah. <laughs> so that could be why. Uh, because <laughs> things were just moving faster. I did find like the sugar cube thing. Yeah. And um the oh my gosh, there's another scene that I kind of giggled at. It was early on though. I felt like I found the first 60 pages funnier than I found the rest of the book. Yeah, like too. the first part was funny, but then I think once you realize like there's not once I realized like there's no happy ending for this, there's no resolution. It's just yeah. going to be sad because it's more of a parable than it just kind of like I think that yeah that's the difference because at the beginning when it was just like describing how like ridiculous the dad was about money like oh he goes into his room and he's like counting his money literally like a dragon's hoard yeah that's that's his main hobby is like literally keeping gold pieces in the home and then what they think he's doing is that he's going and planning they think it's a maps room where he's planning how his his uh garden is gonna be his fruit (laughs) trees are gonna be planted I was like, and he's just in there counting his gold like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> that part yeah. was funny, but then yeah, you're right. The second half of the book, where you realize that nothing is really going to change for this character. Well, and I thought the book would end when the cousin came back and either married her or blew her off. Mm-hmm. But then it just like kept going after he blew her off for like a little bit. Um, yeah, like thirty more, forty more pages. Yeah, it just felt a little bit unnecessary. Also, the cousin who went to the Indies when they finally like, oh, yeah, that's what's happening in France with the girl. And then he, this is what's happening with him. Uh, and they're like, he realized quickly the quickest way to make your fortune was to sell slaves. So oh, he, yeah, total slave trader. Yeah. And then he made a lot of money. And again, it was just like, well, this is gross. <laughs> like, but it makes him if he makes him unlikable to a modern reader. But since they he blew her off. He was gonna. That's who's gonna be unlikable anyway. Yeah. You know? But if they had gotten together at the end, that would have really tainted it for a modern reader. I think. I mean, wasn't in France and like Europe in general, the slave trade was already pretty untasteful in 1830. It was. I mean, I think we're like in the UK. I think it's right around then that they stopped importing slaves from Africa. But I don't know about in France. I wonder if it. The, I'm, I'm saying that because yeah. I wonder if that was included to be like this is distasteful. This guy is gross. Yeah. Because I th- I feel like it was because by then like even in the United States I think in the 1830s or 18 early 1840s we were gonna like not bring in new slaves. We were from, just content with the people that we'd enslaved. Yeah. Just you know. So terrible. <laughs> um. And I and I, it had already happened in the UK and probably yeah. around the same time France earlier in the 1800s like maybe like 1810 yeah. or something. Um. But yeah, so yeah, maybe it wasn't intentional. Like this guy sucks. <laughs> yeah, I wondered that confused. when I was listening he's terrible. to it. Yeah, and she's like really talked up as being like so pious and so good, and and if she had and known it's that about almost him. like she's a caricature of herself too. Like she's so yeah. her one trait is that she's so naive and pious. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it really is a parable. I didn't really think about that when I was reading it, but you're that that hits the nail on the head. Dangers of capitalism. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Dangers of capitalism. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't... We've read a large number of books now, and I didn't dislike this book. It was no. solid middle of the road. Yeah, I'd, I'd put it like... Like, if, you know, out of 100, like, if zero is the worst thing we've read, this is like a 47. <laughs> 45 right in there. Yeah, uh, I was going to say 50. It doesn't... I mean... So we Bleak House, the Chronicles of Barset. There's another one about like a vicar, the vicar or something. Vicar of Wakefield. Vicar of Wakefield. Uh, 
Pierre and Jean, that mm-hmm. one we read, like that was like the fourth book we read, that also French, just all kind of the same kind of book about a family and the countryside and their drama and some morals, like trying to put forward some morals. I would say if I'm comparing this to like uh, Vicar of Wakefield and Barset, what was nice about this one is that it was brief. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like, if I'm going to read a story where very little happens and it's just kind of like this one family's dramas, I don't need to read the 900-page bar set. Yeah, it conveyed its point succinctly, but still meaningfully. Yes. So it does, in my mind, kind of sit a little bit above those because it wasn't as, um, it didn't get as bogged down in, let me tell you how one day they had tea and then the next day they had tea again. <laughs> like, because Barset did do stuff like that where it was well, just. Well, that's because that was English and this one was French. The French didn't drink. They had wine. Okay. I'm sorry. Um... Oh, yes. There was a, that was one of the other lines that was funny when it was like, he, he didn't want to give the cousin who was living with them. The dad was like, you can't give him sugar. Why would he want sugar? And the cousin was trying to explain how he'd make coffee and all this stuff. And, but then the dad goes, but you can have wine, though. Wine is free here. Yeah, it's so cheap here. That's all you can all we drink. <laughs> so it was that like, was funny. you have to split a sugar cube in half, but you can have all the wine you want. <laughs> the I also thought it was funny. Um, this is unintentional, but what is it with books from this era that are just like, let me describe the house. Oh, my God. In extreme detail, because even though this book is short and succinct, a lot of details about like oh this God. is what it looked like what on the was outside. That this is the Hawthorne shape of the room. The house, the seven gables. That was even earlier, and they did yes. that. Yeah, yeah. I, I com- immediately like that's the first few pages of this, and I immediately thought of the house of seven gables. It's like okay, it's in a spooky house. We gotcha. get it. <laughs> we get it. Also, the one that we just read recently um, about the like brother who killed the other oh, brother. Um, Oh, like two sins, books. sins, the sins oh, of the justified sinner, the memoirs of a justified yeah, sinner. It just had a weird name. Yeah. Um, that also had a long description of the house, also from the 1800s in Europe. I feel like, you know, back then there was less to talk about. So you really had to get into <laughs> just like, I'm pretty sure people could still imagine what a house looked like when they read. It's a house. <laughs> That's, I mean, someone was like, it's a spooky, creepy house. <laughs> I'm pretty sure someone in the 1800s would be like, got it. I got it. I got you. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, if I ever travel back in time, that'll be my first question. Tell me what you picture if I say it's a spooky, creepy house that rich people live in. <laughs> Tell me in three to ten pages, please. Yes. Goodness. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. No, overall, though, I – is there any other Balzac on this list? I don't know. So, I wonder if when we read other Balzac works, we behind the scenes check. There are two others we're going to read. Um, I don't really feel like they're going to be painful reads. No. In fact, I feel like this is like a very recognizable author. Like, I definitely feel like, oh, this is literature. You know, yeah. like, gave me that feeling. Um, we're very well read here. Yes, we're very well. It makes you feel well read, which is a good feeling. So, to be, yeah, I wonder if we'll see in the remaining two if it is like a kind of a parable situation or if it'll be continue on the same theme as about greed and money mm-hmm. um, or other moral things maybe different. Uh, I, funny thing, when also when my mom asked me on the phone what we were reading and I told her this and she asked me if it was like a racy 
novel? And I was like, no. And and then she quoted to me a line from the music man in one of the songs when they're singing about Mary and the librarian and about uh-huh. kind of like reference Balzac as like a racy like type mama. But I think it was more just a perhaps a very veiled um, old reference to the silliness of the name Balzac. Oh. <laughs> not that the books are like. I was like, I hope I get some 1830 smut. <laughs> yeah, not smutty. <laughs> um, Which I bet we, I wouldn't really have realized that that was actually just a dirty joke in The Music Man until we read this. <laughs> oh, funny. I know. I, side tangent. I do feel like over time, this list is really making us much, much more well-read. Maybe not in... I don't think all of these books are really like helping us as humans, <laughs> but in that I'm catching so many more literary references Yes, to yeah. things that just went over my head. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say, um, we're like, I'm feeling like half of them are like really helping us and making us yeah. good readers and, and like learning as people, but that's so many more literary references for sure. And, and then that makes the other books we read have more depth because we're catching yeah. more stuff. And it's super interesting because even in um, TV shows or movies, I think more often, I wish I, I should really start, we should both just start like tracking when we notice something like that, but I'll hear some line or something that I'm like, oh, that is a reference to something that I didn't understand before um, because we are kind of building this like background knowledge uh, of works of literature, whether or not they are all good. But we're building the background. Yeah, I know. My husband likes to say that none of them are good, but I firmly hold to 50 percent. 50% 50% I enjoy reading and then some of the remaining 50% I might not enjoy reading but I still think that they're good for me yeah you know <laughs> I would say I firmly think how many books have you read 60 66 I firmly think that 44 of those I appreciate either in that I enjoyed them or I see why I wanted to needed to read them. Yes. The other 22 were a waste of my time. <laughs> Those are pretty good. I'll, I'll <laughs> but like even some of the ones I firmly hate, I think was helpful. Like we hated Look We're Homeward Angel. We hated it. Yeah. But I do think that we're using it as like our point of reference for what that kind of literature is. And we frequently reference it when we're talking about books to say, this is why we don't like this. Yeah. And there is value in that. Yeah. I mean, did I want to read 900 pages to get there? No, (laughs) but did I? Yes. That book is such a tease too. Cause I literally have a quote from that book from the very first page of that book in my quotes journal. Cause it was so good. (laughs) Every, this moment is the fruit of 40,000 years. It's a great, great, great line. Quote. This is going to be a good book. <laughs> nope, not good. That's the one <laughs> thing you took from it. Oh, but I will always, I've memorized that quote. Yeah. So. But no, I do. I do firmly think that two thirds of the books we've read have either given me something good or I have enjoyed. Yeah, totally. The other third, no. But I mean, if you think about literature you choose for yourself, I don't think that my odds are much better than that in books that I start on my own. The difference here is that I finish these books no matter what. 
Yeah, I think that that's a huge part of it is that we wouldn't we would choose not to finish something if we would just picked it. I think the hundred percent the main value in taking on a project like this or why anyone should read any of these books is because it's making you pick something that you would never touch otherwise. Yeah. Um, and you might find something really great or just something that challenges you, you know? Yeah. And other, I mean, I think you can really get in a stuck in a rut as a reader where you just, I'm reading mysteries mm-hmm. or I'm reading fantasy books with a strong female lead or I'm reading, you know, and, and, and those are good, but they, they do start to feel the same after a while because all those authors read each other too, you know, like they grow. Yeah. And, and, uh, and sometimes it's just good to read something that like, shocks you out of that a little bit and I think that it is there is a lot of power in which in starting or finishing I don't care if you finish the Colmore Angel but starting books that you don't like um so that you can recognize what you don't like yeah um because there's been books on our list that I assumed I wouldn't like because I thought that they were in a genre of things I didn't enjoy, but that I did enjoy. Like when we talk about um, how I oddly really do like unique narration styles sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you wouldn't have known that before. I wouldn't have really known that before. And I don't think I would have taken the risk with a lot of them because the idea of not liking a book was so scary, but like now at this point into our recordings, if I don't like a book, I don't like a book. It's yeah. fine. It's worth seeing if that unique narration style is worth it. Yeah. And sometimes the ones that we don't like lead to the best conversation. And very, very frequently we've like convinced the other person that the book was more worthwhile yeah. than we thought on our own. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Well, we've went on a whole tangent, but do you think Eugenie Grandat belongs on the list? No, no. <laughs> I, I do want to put a caveat that I will be interested when we read the other Balzacs, if together reading a few works of the comedy humane belongs on the list. Right. Yeah. Cause I don't think that this was like objectively bad, but on its own, I don't think it belongs on there. Yeah, totally. So let's try our next book. Book 67. Dun. I can't believe we're getting close to 70. Dun, dun, dun. We're almost to our tattoos at a hundred. I know it's exciting. <laughs> okay. Our next book is called the year of the death of Ricardo Reyes. Reyes. Somebody's dying. Very good. It makes me think of like, maybe it's like a hundred years of solitude. Like some, like, yeah. um, what is it? It does give me realism. those vibes. Yeah. 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 Something, something by a South American author, maybe. Which we haven't read that region in a while. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see how this one goes. I feel like from the title, I don't know if I'm gonna like it. <laughs> but that's judging a book by its title. Yes. So we shall see. And you see. just said that you should still read it. <laughs> I just don't like how wordy the title is. The I mean, year the wordy, of the death two episodes, of two episodes ago, we read. The House with the Blind Glass Windows. That's and a, I loved that book. Yeah, that's a wordy title. So, all righty. Well, we will be tackling that. And while we are doing that, we hope that you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Litzy at 1001BooksPod or at 1001BooksPodcast. And you can email us at 1001BooksPodcast at gmail.com. And until then, happy, happy reading. reading.